from the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. I am uh, happy that uh, all the Christmas festivities are over. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a hater on Christmas, but I am, uh, I'm, I'm glad that we're past all these holidays and we're kind of like starting over, starting in year. Yeah. 2020. Yeah. What? It's crazy. We're, we're getting like, into the time when like movies, this was like the future yeah, was 2020. Yeah. I'm cold. I don't know about you, but I'm, I mean... It was really hot this past summer. Yeah. But I'm freezing. Yeah. But we do have some uh, J&B scotch here to warm us up for our we movie do. this week. They're not an official sponsor, but <laughs> it seemed appropriate that we drink we have to. J&B scotch since we're doing The Thing. John Carpenter's The Thing. So stoked to talk about this one. A classic masterpiece. It's often referred to now. Yeah. 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 A reason for doing this one was uh, there's uh, several directors we've like double dipped on for episodes yeah. i was like man i can't believe we haven't done a john carpenter movie and so kind of looking through it just seemed like this is the most appropriate movie to to talk about and i'm i'm, I'm pumped this is this is actually and it's perfect to do this uh in the dead of winter because this is a movie i never really watched this one in october this isn't my go-to like sort of like mm-hmm. horror movie october movie to watch this is like dead of winter i watched like fargo the shining and sure and, yeah uh, the thing you know yeah and John Carpenter, he's just such a genius writer, director. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan composer. of John Carpenter. Composer. Um, big fan. We're big fans of him. Yeah. And it is a kind of a crime that we've made it this far without. Yeah. yeah. Well, this this episode will be John Carpenter this is heavy. It. Yeah, this is it. <laughs> so we got a lot to talk about with the thing. Um, but we oh, also yeah. have our picks of the week. We do. To talk about this episode. I stayed uh, Carpenter heavy, but I went with uh, kind of like not the most seen Carpenter movie. I went with mm-hmm. um, the uh, made-for-TV Elvis movie from 1979 that John Carpenter did, which was his first uh, movie that he did with Kurt Russell. John Carpenter, you know, he loves horror movies and I think learned to appreciate the fact that people looked at him as a horror director. But the man's gone gone beyond horror plenty of times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this is one of those times. Yeah. Um, I stayed with Kurt Russell, who was the star of The Thing and the Elvis movie. Um, I, I went with 1997's Breakdown. I love Breakdown. I was really excited that you picked that one. I love this movie. I've watched it so many times. Yeah. It's very, it's um tense. It's a thrill ride. Yeah, it is. So we'll get into those picks in a little bit and, of course, round things out with the Murray moment. But a lot of things to talk about with John Carpenter's version of the thing. Definitely, like we said, we're going to talk about Carpenter. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about his working relationship with Kurt Russell. Mm-hmm. So much production stories on this movie. I mean, they, this thing, they worked on this thing for like, they worked on the thing for like an entire year. <laughs> yeah. I think like a lot of the effects stuff, practical effects stuff took like a year or two it's to so, get worked on. So heavy in that department and very impressive. And I'm sure that there were many firsts um, 
that that happened in the thing and and a lot of um, career starters too the effects of the thing are what most people think of when they think of this movie so we'll be hitting a lot of the practical effects cinematography um some behind the scenes filming things that happened on the production um, of course, the cast. We'll yeah. go into that. Awesome very, cast for this ensemble piece. I very love much. It. I love it when we do movies with ensemble pieces. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll talk about just a kind of overall critical audience reception when it came out. Yeah. Um, and going into why this movie worked, the tone, themes, yeah. pacing, all that sort of thing. There's so many things that, that uh, make this... It it goes along very much with the like pacing of say Halloween, another Carpenter movie. It kind of stands out from other sci-fi movies uh, of of the time. Well, before we get into this discussion, um, Lindsay, can you give us the breakdown? Just simply, what is the thing about? What is this thing? So, a team of researchers in Antarctica come across a shape-shifting alien that's unearthed by a, a previous, now defunct, and murdered group of uh, presumably other researchers of Norwegian descent is, is really all we know about them. The thing takes over or assimilates to any life form it can possess in a very grotesque way. It's still somewhat a little unclear to me, but... Um, it takes you over, that's for sure. So human, dog, bug, multi-legged creature, it doesn't matter what you are. And you don't know you're the thing until it's too late. Pretty terrifying. It's pretty, pretty wild. Yeah. Well, uh, well, wherever you're listening from, we hope you're cozy. We hope uh, it's not too chilly. We'll go into a clip from The Thing, and then we'll start breaking this movie down. We'll talk about it. Pour yourself a little scotch. Let's sit back. Scotch is pretty tasty. I'm going to hide this tape when I'm finished. If none of us make it, at least there'll be some kind of record. Storm's been hitting us hard now for 48 hours. We still have nothing to go on. thing I think it rips through your clothes when it takes you over windows found some shredded long johns but the name tag was missing they could be anybody's nobody nobody trusts anybody now we're all very tired trust anybody now. There's nothing else I can do. Just wait. RJ McCready, helicopter pilot, U.S. Outpost number 31. So kind of starting off, uh, we both have watched a lot of interviews with John Carpenter these mm-hmm. last few weeks. And just about every interview where he talks about the thing, you know, he says this was one of the toughest shoots that he ever did. And he says this is he thinks this is the strongest film in his career and the one that he's most proud of. Yeah. And the one he was kind of most hurt from because of the the response to it was so poor and it was not a successful 
film and it was his career. When it was released. When it was released, yeah. It's now gone on to generate a lot of acclaim and really like well-loved and well-respected. But this was not a movie that John Carpenter had set out to make. He made Halloween for $350,000. It went on to make like $70 million, crazy. you know, worldwide. So he became sort of this like hit director, did some television movies, did Escape from New York. And then a producer friend of his approached him with the idea of doing a remake of The Thing that was going to be backed by Universal Studios and have a big budget. And it really wasn't something that interested him at first because there had already been some like workings, you know, rumblings of people trying to get a remake of The Thing off the ground. Even Toby Hooper wrote a script for like a feature script for the movie. Mm -hmm. But eventually John Carpenter was convinced to go ahead and update the um, original Thing film um, but immediately realized, you know, he wanted to take a much different approach from that film, uh, idealisms. And the 1951 film, The Thing from Another World, was very inspirational to uh, to John Carpenter, and he really loves that movie. Um, that original story, though, was um, different from the original story by uh, John W. Campbell. That novella was called Who Goes There? The 1982 John Carpenter thing movie is much truer to that story than the original 51 movie. You watch part of the um, a thing from another world too. And yeah, and it's it's definitely a movie of its time. In my of its opinion. time, yeah, and it, and it's great for what it was. And I think even um, there there's an effect that happens in it. <laughs> I mean, not really an effect, but um, uh, where the th- the thing in in John Carpenter's, uh, like I said, is is truer to the original story, which is. You know, it can be anything, you know, it can morph into anyone or anything and 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 assimilates and becomes that in the 51 movie. It is very much like a um, human figure, more of a Frankenstein type of like monster. I don't want to say I don't want to say Frankenstein, but very much like a lumbering, you know, man of some kind. But it does, I think it was the first time that um, a stuntman had been set on fire because they were really throwing gasoline on on him and and like set this person on fire. It's kind of crazy. But, you know, it it was awesome for its time, but very different from the original story. And it was cool that Carpenter brought it back, um, that his film brought it back to that original story. And kind of, you know, this might be sort of like a weird... uh comparison here but i almost feel like john carpenter made the thing pre-platoon but Mm -hmm. the thing to me the kind of update of the thing is like it's like has a little bit of a platoon vibe because john carpenter took the idea of making a science fiction film and instead of the paranoia Mm -hmm. and the scare being them against this alien working as a team it's like them working against each other and fighting each other the same way Oliver Stone kind of took a Vietnam movie and Uh. made it less about fighting the enemy and more about fighting ourselves as the team. Man, I hadn't gone there. My brain was definitely going towards Alien, Ridley Scott's Alien. Yeah, there's, yeah, undeniable comparisons. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Dan O'Bannon that wrote Alien, he and Carpenter were were buddies. Yeah, well, they were buddies. They They they, were buddies. They had a pretty salty. (laughs) Yeah. Or, well, Dan O'Bannon was pretty salty about he's, Carpenter. You know, O'Bannon's got, he's he's salty he with a lot of issues, people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, even though there are comparisons, uh, very obvious comparisons with Alien, 
I do like that, you know, alien in a sense, everyone comes together to fight the alien and are picked off one by one. And, you know, like you said, kind of like with Platoon, they're just, um, it is, it is a free for all paranoia fest in, in the thing. And, and I think you can say this movie is a, a horror movie, but to me, I'm not really scared when I watch this, it is the paranoia that freaks me out the most. And I think the strongest thing in this, and, and that's why I think if you're even a, not a fan of horror movies, if you can, you know, look at the effects and be like, okay, that's not real. I can move past right, it. Yeah. Um, it, th- this movie is more about paranoia and being freaked out yeah, than it, it is anything else. And one of the, my favorite things about the thing and, and why I can, get into it so much is because I think, you know, at its heart, it's a survivalist movie. And it's again, one of these movies where, um, self-preservation kicks in and you kind of, you know, you as an audience member can say, okay, here's what would I do in this situation? Like, I can't trust anybody, you know, would I be the person that would step up and, and, uh, do like fight or flight or like, would I be the person who would kind of get picked off early? Cause I wouldn't, you know, be able to handle the stress of the situation or I would like freak out kind of like windows. Yeah. Or the yeah. Wil- Wilford Brimley character, you know, <laughs> the Wilford Brimley character cracks me up. I feel so bad for that guy in the movie. I know they lock him up outside yeah. cause they think he's the thing. He's also the only, the, the doctor. Yeah. They make <laughs> him such like a sad sack toward the half. Last he half doesn't say he doesn't end up a sad sack. The where he, where he's locked up though. And, um, Kurt Russell, comes out and is asking him I think he, where where one of the other characters is and he's like it's not him you don't have got to worry about him yeah. but I want to come back inside I'm fine yeah. now <laughs> that I like, always uh, laugh at we that We don't part. think so old man <laughs> yeah they're just very defiant they just like close that little door they've set him up outside i mean i'd rather be set up outside in a doghouse except for that like noose that they like conveniently left him out there with kidding me it was never really explained if anyone sets me up outside in the middle of like a snowstorm and in a hut with a noose like they're telling me i think they're given a helpful well i wasn't sure if like he like he did he make it did he that's what i that's what i uh that's what I'd get took from it. God, but. it's even more depressing. Yeah, I don't. I'm not depressed because he shows yeah. up at the end. So, um, but uh, sort of back to the 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 beginning of the thing. Um, uh, when Carpenter set out to do his reincarnation, he had written two of his big movies, uh, Halloween and Escape from New York, and or you know co-written them. Mm-hmm. Um, but he went with a screenwriter for this movie and. Uh, strangely hired Bill Lancaster, who, um, if you look Bill Lancaster up, I mean, the only really thing he had done was Bad News Bears and Bad News Bears Go to Japan. But he uh, pitched John Carpenter on a couple really interesting ideas that got John Carpenter excited, Uh, Mm -hmm. one being the scene where uh, the stomach scene, which is a scene that everybody can, you know, sort of like uh very memorable and then the scene where kurt russell is making everybody do the blood test and those are two scenes that bill lancaster was like kind of pitching john carpenter got carpenter excited and got bill lancaster hired as a screenwriter and uh i think it's a really tight really cohesive nice script and uh, weirdly bill lancaster like i don't know that he's like really done anything after the thing i don't but but Granted, this was a movie that was not like a huge hit, so this wasn't like a, a big uh, selling point for 
I mean, them. a lot of people that worked on on these movies had had worked with Carpenter before and, yeah. and went on to great careers afterwards. The I feel like we have to, in case anyone has not seen the thing, those two those two scenes in particular, especially the stomach scene, are so cool. Um, and that was um, it, um, we'll talk more about practical effects later, but one where someone's getting a defibrillator, you know, put on their chest to get them get their body recharged and get back to being alive. And um, I think it's only with the second when the paddles are put on there, then it is instantaneous and it is a shock. If you've not seen this movie before, this just entire like chest cavity opens up to where it's just teeth and closes down on the guy's arms, rips the arms off. It is an impressive, shocking scene. Yeah. And it's, it's, I, I mean, well it done. still holds up. It's, yeah, and it's it doesn't. Still pretty shocking. It's very shocking. It also does not end there. Yeah. Um, and then the blood test scene is really cool too, and very, very tense. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think those are the two, two of my favorite scenes in the movie too. So I can see why John Carpenter was like immediately like, oh, I can see how this could be like visually exciting. And even though it is very visually exciting, this movie is an action movie, but it's also a slow burn and it is haunting and, you know, kind of just sets it apart. It's not just like a hack and slash. It's not just a monster movie. It is a, yeah, it's creepy. Yeah, well, it has a. It's. I feel like this movie's like very deliberately paced. Yeah, and it is. It is a slow burn for sure. I mean, there is. They take their time setting up the scene, but I think it's important because I feel like we as an audience, you know, you want to feel how desolate of a environment they're in. They're out in Antarctica. Yeah. Uh, they're like alone. Um, they and then when once the thing starts taking over bodies and picking people off they pretty much lose community i mean all communication with the outside world yeah. and there is that feeling of desolation of like kind of feeling like stranded yeah the first like 30 minutes of this movie kind of setting up the characters and like setting up their relationships is kind of happening but i don't but this movie doesn't feel boring to me i mean it's a slow burn in the sense of it takes its time setting the scene for like 15 minutes even in the opening there's kind of like some crazy action going on and yeah. then they yeah. utilize this sort of um metamorphosis of the thing kind of taking over people and they're learning about this you know team that already ex- this mm-hmm. team that was killed by the thing uh, mm-hmm. you know mile miles miles away yeah um, they're kind of learning new information we as the audience is, are digesting this new information that we're getting we're learning with the characters you know so this is kind of you know it, it to me it develops as like a nice mystery a nice yeah. like ensemble character yeah. study i've said it before i've not always been like a huge science fiction fan and this to me i think is like way more science fiction than horror and this is the kind of sci-fi that i can get into where there's you know there's a little bit of mystery there's some intrigue there's some actual science you know they're trying to figure out what the thing is what what kind of organism it is, how it can take over, you know, how it can uh, change its shape into creating something that's identical to other life forms. And not all that is necessarily explained at the end of the movie, but I do feel like we're getting, you know, there's some science behind it and we're getting some of the information. And, and I think this is another movie, a lot of movies were slow burns where information is kind of the excitement, but then you pile in all these crazy effect scenes and 
action sequences that happen that are pretty riveting throughout the movie. I, I've I've heard people say this is like a slow film, but I don't I don't uh, I don't feel that way. I I, I feel I feel like it's a, a pretty deliberately paced movie, but is always pushing forward. And Carpenter's not really one for giving you like the the explanation or the the origin of something because he wants to creep you out. It's it's the fear of the unknown, the thing that you can't explain, the thing that you don't know why it's happening, which is the part that's creepy. And and I do think that this movie has a very crafty opening. And when I say opening, I mean like the first 20 minutes. The movie opens with a helicopter, unknown helicopter, chasing and shooting after this dog. And immediately you're like, what? Why are we shooting after this dog? And I'm trying to watch this as if I've never seen it before. And you could think, yes, why are they shooting after this dog? But you can also kind of like push it aside once the characters at the camp that we know it as are introduced. It could be nothing. You know, this this dog just enters this camp. Sure. Then we get distracted by being introduced to the main characters. That is part of the story, yes, but it's also kind of a diversionary tactic because the dog is the thing. And we don't know this. We don't have any clues. Slowly but surely, we see how this dog is kind of infiltrating the camp. And we're... If you're... If you, aren't paying attention, you're going to kind of miss all of these little clues, but you were being set up the whole entire time. So it might seem like a slow burn, but everything is so deliberate and all, all working towards the, uh, the, the first effects scene that we see with the dogs. Yeah. And I want to say one last thing before we go to yeah. the clip is, is the, just the, the atmosphere that's set up is, is kind of something that, is something that you don't normally see in movies. You don't normally see this sort of like icy glacier landscape, like this desolate, cold, barren Especially in 82. Yeah, and so, um, and it's still, to me, like when I watch it, like I was like, wow, just the atmosphere that they're in feels like highly original and really fresh. Just the location that they're at alone is like a character in the movie, and Mm -hmm. um, it really sort of like intensifies, you know, this, you know, and and again, that's why I always, this is a movie I go to like in the dead of winter, because it's like, you you know, you've been in your house, you're starting to get a little stir crazy, but you're like, I don't do, I don't want to feel like going out in that. And there's multiple scenes in the movie where people are coming in from the cold and they're like, Oh my God, you know, at nighttime you see that it's their beards are frozen. Yeah. You know, yeah. Everybody's like looking like popsicles. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get to it. So hang with us, but we're going to talk more about the production and also, uh, you know, that, that setting and everything that we're in the Antarctic, how, uh, how it's not completely, what you see that all of that actually is a set, yeah. but set within realness too. We'll get there. Yeah, we'll go into another clip and then we'll get back into the thing. You the only one who made it? Not the only one. Did you kill it? Where were you, Charles? Thought I saw Blair. I went out after him. Got lost in the storm. <laughs> Fire's got the temperature up all over the camp. Won't last long, though. Neither will we. How will we make it? 
Maybe we should. If you're worried about me. If we've got any surprises for each other. I don't think we're in much shape to do anything about it. Just wait here for a little while. See what happens. So the production of the thing, uh, everything that we've read, uh, John Carpenter, cast and crew said this was a very arduous, difficult, challenging film to make production lingered on for just about a year they were constantly shooting stuff the effects work was always behind this movie was shot in several different locations a lot of the on location exterior stuff that you see was shot in Alaska and British Columbia a lot of the interior stuff was shot on the soundstage at Universal Studios in Los Angeles movies are supposed to do that they're supposed to seem very seamless but it's interesting to see the to think about the interiors of this movie being shot so far away uh in a, in a totally hot location you <laughs> yeah know? yeah um but it's a really the the I, I you know i think is as difficult it was for them to shoot in these exterior scenes it was really cold it was really harsh um they built the compound that the men and the thing are stationed at uh, during the summertime and then they waited for it to snow. So like everything that you see, those exteriors was like built for the movie and it's pretty amazing. It's easy to forget little kind of technical things such as, you know, we're in super cold, you know, negative 20, negative 40 degrees and it's actually bad weather at times and snowing. Like some of these, these snow scenes, like there were storms that actually happened during production and they would work those in. And also think about this you can't go from shooting you know negative 20 degrees to going inside their their building here so they had to leave all their lenses and everything to do with the camera like outside because you you know you bring that inside that's going to fog up and what i don't think ruin the lens but take days yeah to to get back and the interiors of the movie you know had to look equally cold so they actually like uh kind of something similar that they did in the movie The Exorcist where they sort of like almost like refrigerated the set and they kept yeah. it around like around 40 degrees and then they kept like it humid so that you could see their breaths inside. Um, but we want to get into a little bit with the special effects uh, for this movie because it is a very uh, character-driven film, but um, there are like just so many scenes that are, you know, really also effects-driven. The main... Uh, effects person behind this movie was Rob Bottin, who impressively enough was 22 years old when he started uh, working on the thing with John Carpenter. Insane. And before this, he had worked on the Howling. He was like a 20 year old kid when he took over the Howling for, you know, he learned some came up under Rick Baker on the Howling, Mm -hmm. took took over the Howling, was like a really driven person like wanted to meet John Carpenter was a fan of his work yeah got onto the fog yeah. worked you know said hey I'll do anything you know and a lot of trust in in a director to say hey we're gonna take this 22 year old kid and and throw him 
into being responsible for this massive undertaking. And he came to Carpenter with a lot of great ideas that were incredibly impressive. And, you know, to the point that Carpenter's like, all right, can you really do this? And Botine's like, well, I can really do it. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. And granted, he had a team of like, you know, yeah. illustrators and, and designers that were, were helping him along the way. But um, from everything that I've read and from what I've heard, in interviews of John Carpenter, he said that, uh, you know, he credits Rob Bottin with 50% of how well the effects come off and 50% to Dean Cundy, the cinematographer, mm -hmm. for f lighting them and filming the effects in a way so that you don't see any of the seams, you don't see the sure. latex. You know, Carpenter has said multiple times in interviews that Rob Bottin, you know, stretched himself very thin um, yeah. and he was working on effects for like a straight year, like pretty much nonstop and... He like moved into Universal, basically. Rob Bottin did. Yeah, yeah, Rob Bottin just basically moved into Universal and and worked seven days a week nonstop when he wasn't sleeping. That's what he was working on, and he and he burned himself out, even though he outsourced to other people to help him with effects. But it was just overwhelming. I mean, for anyone, and let alone being twenty two and taking this on. But I, I mean, you know. You're hungry. You're not going to give a shot like this up, of course. We're we're watching um we're watching the thing right now in the background and and the biggest effect scene um is about ready to start, which is when we already said that the the dog is the original carrier of the thing and um it comes in and is caged around the other dogs um that are that are with this team of researchers and it never dawned on me until like learning kind of what you know in researching this that a lot of these dogs are fake they're completely fake yeah and, and which, which i'm happy about because totally they, happy about they get kind yes. of thrown around and like sprayed <laughs> this and like, um as, as someone who loves animals this yeah. scene really sucks to watch yeah um but i will say one number one learning that they were fake dogs makes this scene a lot easier to stomach and two it is probably one of the best um illustrations of lighting and how it's used in this that you can't really tell that they're fake dogs yeah, yeah. Uh, because I've, I've never thought that once and i i mean you care about all the dogs in this situation that are being affected and yeah you can't really tell that they're yeah, fake and, and it, that that's saying a lot and some of the effects in this like it's like animatronics mixed with like latex and like all these practical effects and sure, some of it when you watch it now, I mean, certainly there's a few cuts where this looks really raw, but some of it, the way it's lit is like, it's, it's, it's very visceral and like, yeah. it, it really jumps out at you. I mean, I, it, it's still, I mean, again, I, you know, I keep going back to this, but just like, it really blows my mind that like a 22 year old kid, like, uh, was like responsible for like some cutting edge effects and yeah. some stuff that really hadn't been seen on screen, you know, in 1982 practical effects in general they're really happening in front of you and so there is that more of like a tactile feeling but for the thing I don't know if it's just the you know everything everything being covered in gallons of KY jelly that make it even more like ugh, like you can just feel it's very slimy it's very again slimy. like alien the sort of drippy yes. wet glossy <laughs> yeah. gooey substance you know yeah and yeah. You know, they they did use a few th like there's a, a autopsy scene later, and even that feels 
so I think there was like an actual liver that they bought yeah. from a store used in, in that too. But that just feels like I feel like I know what it. I, I'm kind of glad I didn't have the high def version of this yeah. because it might be like a little too yeah. much. But it, at the same time, that's what makes it so impressive. This movie is not for the squeamish. I mean. You know, I this movie did get a lot of criticism for being kind of like a gross, gross-out type movie. I, I can't really defend people's disgust with it because sure. there, it's some, it's a pretty gruesome film. I mean, there's, um, I don't mind it, and I, you know, and I'm, and I'm not a gorehound by any means. I'm not, I'm not looking to see people get their heads chopped off and all this stuff. But this movie doesn't really bother me, and I think a lot of it's because it's coming from this more like um, alien, extraterrestrial, like life form a lot of it's not um you know like a yeah. human being getting their head cut off it's they transform into different things but i will say some of these scenes go on excruciatingly long <laughs> yes the uh, that's very true they the, do the go dog very, scene goes on dog scene could be it, it, yeah it goes on a long <laughs> it's not time. that you're like okay yeah. i'm ready for it to end it's not like right, interesting right. to but, watch but it's painful yeah it's just a, it's a, it's a long it's a long kind of like gory scene. I think I think originally that's why I was like, Justin, I don't want to do an episode on the thing because the scene with the dog is really upsetting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think with so many things like this, w- you have to move beyond what you know what it is, and like it's not a real dog. The Humane Society was on the set, and any time that the real dog actor Jed was yeah. being used. Um, and any of the other dogs for all our very animal loving listeners i mean i am no i'm just saying like because we always go on extra long about the animal (laughs) stuff so i'm gonna talk about jet again i know i know i'm certain that you will (laughs) right behind darla the dog right um no but these these scenes um they're just so guttural and like you said visceral um it's what makes them so entertaining to watch because you really do see the artistry that someone that something can make you physically like react and yeah. that's 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 something that came out of you know Rob Bottin's head it's it's amazing I, I think when you look back on the thing now and you you watch it in you know 2020 it's it's interesting to see how well this stuff still holds up and it's, st- and it's impressive to me today well let's uh let's talk a little bit about the cast before we kind of wrap things up on the thing because we always enjoy an ensemble cast for uh, the movies that we talk about and this is kind of interesting because this movie uh, most of the the majority of the cast for the thing uh, this was like their first film production they were all trained actors they came from the theater and they had been trained thespians but really outside of like you know uh, Wilford Brimley and Kurt Russell uh, none of them had really done like a, a film production. John Carpenter kind of insisted that uh, they all get together. They rehearsed for two weeks. So he got Universal Studios to rent a soundstage and the actors all got together. The actors said it was a great experience for them, especially coming from the theater. They were used to that process of like rehearsing for plays and, and preparing and building a bond with each other. And Keith David, one of the main actors from the film, said that uh, though he appreciated and he was thankful that John Carpenter insisted on the two weeks of rehearsals, uh, he said John Carpenter said it was the last time that he would do this sort of 
uh, pre-rehearsal because he didn't John Carpenter didn't like the way that they're they're bonding certain you know friendships he said that kind of came through on the screen he didn't like that he sort of felt that they lost some of the spontaneity because certain people mm, had become friends yeah. and he thought it kind of was like distracting to me I don't I don't know like when I watch the film I don't necessarily feel like there are any kinships here though they you can tell that they've been mm-hmm. they have a working relationship um they all seem kind of like they're not loners i mean certainly like kurt russell's character is supposed to be a loner in richard masher richard masser uh who's the dog wrangler um is a loner but i don't really see feel like there's um any buddies in the movie you know like it it doesn't really come across as like oh these guys are the buddies you know these are the best friends or whatever It, it it feels very kind of sterile like these guys are here to do a job they're they're and they're just trying to like get through the winter. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, you know, if Carpenter kind of edited around, you know, those things that he saw, because I get the same feeling that you do. I don't, I don't see any like um, alliances or like anything w- with anyone necessarily. Now, but the actors themselves did form a camaraderie. Um, because when you're, you know, out in the middle of nowhere or, or just on location in Alaska or a small town in British Columbia, you're just around each other. Like you do form, form this bond. And, um, I, I know that there are some stories that, um, apparently are too private to tell, but there's a lot of tight lips in this cast, but they did really form a, a bond. So you see how they are on screen. They really tried to, um... Try to hone that in. Like I said, you know, I do feel like there's not like these kinships in the movie, but I don't feel like the characters are necessarily one dimensional. I mean, no. certainly there's not a there's not a ton of time invested in setting up each individual character. You know, we get like more of like what their tasks are, you know, are set up like what yeah. their position is amongst this like unit. But I do feel like each actor brought like sort of some sort of sense of personality so that. Um, we're able to see that grow a little bit. One of the interviews with the actors, like the guy that plays the character Windows, mm-hmm. um, that was his idea for his them. His last name is Windows, by the way. Well, and that, well, that was his idea. He came up with that, and John Carpenter went went, went with it, and uh, it it really like pissed off a lot of the actors because because <laughs> John Carpenter was like, "You're just calling him Windows from here on out in the movie," and and they you know were like, "This is really stupid," but. You know, I mean, but but I could understand, you know, a standpoint of actor like I need an edge, you know, I need something to differentiate, you know, like and that sticks out to me. You know, he wears the glasses and they're calling them windows and he's the one that goes crazy and he's a more memorable character to me in the movie. Is it because his name is Windows? I don't know. (laughs) But I I don't know. To to me, it was like a clever move to like kind of like give yourself like a memorable name. I'm so distracted by by Windows being a name yeah. for some reason. You know, and like the guy, uh, actor T.K. Carter, who's, you know, mm-hmm. on, the, on the roller skates. Skates, it's, yeah. It's just to me, it's like these little bitty things. And, it, you yeah. know, it's not much, you know, but it's it's something that sticks out. And I think that um, in an ensemble cast, especially in a movie like this, especially when there's like it's a group of all dudes and wearing a lot of the same costuming. Yeah. It's just these little things that can kind of. Uh, instead of like a typical like horror film or you know where they just start getting picked off before you even really get to know somebody it is really fun to to watch this like since we're kind of breaking it down to rewatch this movie and think about all of those like little 
intricate things that maybe you don't even notice you know maybe you you just take it in as it comes to you but noticing that those were very intentional moves in order to set these characters apart yeah and i think the movie does a good job i love like donald moffitt who's the plays he's the gary the guy with the gun the older the the good eyebrows yeah yeah and you know, right away, sort of, you kind of see where they start arguing, Mm -hmm. like, who should be in charge, and, like, when one person dies, like, Keith David kind of wants to be in charge, and and there's a scene where he, him and Richard Master have, like, a confrontation. You can kind of start seeing a struggle, like, of, of, like, somebody needs to, like, kind of take control, and, like, we need to work as a team, but it really starts kind of un- this is kind of works differently than your your standard movie where they're like we got to work as a team to get through this it, it really is like a kind of every man for himself yeah really starts- kind of from the get-go i mean it that really no one really is uh trusting anybody which i think is the whole point but no one's really trusting anybody pretty much like you know 30 minutes in it's like we will kill anybody if it means if we even like question it. Well, it just starts disintegrating. And I think, you know, beyond the obvious, you know, the other, the, the, the unknown other thing, the, the thing that is attacking us, um, what actually is attacking them is their own distrust and fear and everything that's playing into, um, not trusting each other because I mean, in the in this situation, you can't really yeah. trust each other. You don't really have another option. And then that's why I think that the because of that, that's why I think when they do the 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 blood testing scene, I think is so intense. Is because that scene rules. <laughs> I think it's so intense because at this point, or you know, we as an audience are like, okay, like nobody is is forming an alliance with anyone, and and we at this point need some sort of reassurance. Like, okay, we need we need a reset. We need to see like. Who 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 is the good guy? Who is the bad guy? And I kind of do love how they flip it on the audience a little bit with the blood test, where Kurt Russell's like setup obviously is like the star main character, sure. and he kills the Richard Master character. Kind of like we're you know we're fully expecting like okay, well he knew, and Kurt Russell's so confident he like convinces us like I figured this whole thing out, and he's kind of explaining sort of explaining the plot, but then when he does the blood test and he finds out that Richard Master was not the thing he was human he he has he, this he has this very m- quick moment of like he doesn't look as confident as he did yeah. you know and, and you kind of get these cuts of all these people saying like okay we yeah, we're like tied David's- down to chairs we've like put our trust in you for this second and we as an audience have done the same thing too and so that it makes it so edgy but then when but then he stops and he's like I'm going to show you what I already know now but it's still not working, and then the blood jumps out of the container, and it, it you know, it it's very exciting. Uh, the blood test scene is a really good ensemble uh, ensemble moment because Kurt Russell is in charge of that. You've got dudes that he's tied up to chairs, and and it, no one knows if you're the thing, if if you are. And I mean, rewatching that. Um, there was a technique that they kind of used in, well, at least that's uh, alluded to being used. And that since we as the audience don't know who the thing is or who it's turning into. And I think that the actors also didn't know like in advance, like a lot of in advance who was going to be the thing or turning into. But apparently 
the actors that are not supposed to be the thing they have more of like this glimmer this uh light in their eye and then the person that is the thing and i think that the um best example of this is the scene where they're the blood test scene and being tied up to the chair and it's the guy that kind of has dead eyes and that might not be something that you notice immediately when you're watching this because it is such a tense scene and you're not really paying attention to dude over here but that is the one that slowly inside he's turning into this creature yeah and um you know and another thing that i love about that moment too is that we go from everyone being tied up super tense blood test and and kurt russell so confident confident he knows who it is and then slowly one by one he's like losing confidence yeah then we find out who is the thing it's a giant explosion of like complete chaos dudes trying to break free sitting next to this guy while they're you know tied up with rope and then after after that thing situation is handled we've still got gary who's tied up and just like we we go from tense to complete chaos to this moment of like okay we still got one more guy to test yeah yeah it's um it's such a roller coaster and we do not leave that tiny room at all yeah and i mean and and from that moment forward I, i feel like the rest of the movie is like so chaotic yeah. until the, you know, until the end, till the, till the very end. Yeah. Um, I want to say one final thing just uh, yeah. for, with the cast before we kind of wrap up and go to our picks of the week. Kurt Russell uh, has, a, you know, had a long working relationship with John Carpenter. They've done five films together, uh, including my pick of the week it was with their first film, mm-hmm. uh, the Elvis movie. Um, but he, I think the thing is one of Kurt Russell's best roles I feel like Kurt Russell has this ability of playing in maybe this is this again I'm making these strange comparisons uh, this episode to me he's a lot like Tom Cruise only he's like a manly Tom Cruise Tom Cruise has the ability to play action hero roles but bringing some sort of like dramatic depth to them and I feel like Kurt Russell's the same way though he does more I think like rugged roles you know yeah he's a rugged looking guy but he's not like a muscle bound dude. No. But he but yeah. I think all of like his a lot of his roles, he does have like I mean, he he's a better actor than I think like he leads on to be because of a lot of the movies he does Aww. are but you know, I mean a lot yeah. of movies he do, he does are like kind of like B movie action yeah. movie. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that but, before. But he yeah. does bring the this like dramatic feel to those movies and that's why I think like a lot of my favorite action type movie star Kurt Russell because you know Kurt Russell has that ability to like kind of like bring like life to like an action hero type character in an action hero type movie but make it feel more grounded because he does have like some dramatic depth to him like in the way he like reacts to things and the way he speaks sure and uh and it doesn't always feel like it doesn't feel like one note to me I feel like Kurt Russell is like that guy that I would want to be in a movie or like that rugged really cool dude that like I don't want to like but I can't deny that he's just like a really like kind of awesome guy and I while I love him in action roles too I mean probably my favorite Kurt Russell movie is Overboard but I'm and but also my favorite Bruce Willis movie is Death Becomes Her so these are also string beyond action 
uh, action movies. And I and I feel like some of uh, Kurt Russell's best work was with John Carpenter. I love the Jack Burton character in Big Trouble in Little China so much. I mean, who doesn't? He's awesome. Um, but I will say he did one film that um, I don't know that gets talked about too much, and it was called Dark Blue. It came out in 2002, but the movie actually takes place around the time of the the L.A. riots in the early 90s, and Kurt Russell plays like kind of like a really kind of awful character, kind of like this sort of like mean racist uh, cop, and really one of the more dark roles I've seen Kurt Russell play. I was, but he does a great job in it, and it's a, a, a role movie worth checking out if you haven't seen it. I mean, even. Kurt Russell in Death Proof, um, like Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah. Um, he's his character sucks. Yeah, and, yeah. And, but man, is he really good at playing that guy? He's he's got a lot of range, and I, I um, yeah, Kurt Russell never always been on board with that guy. Yeah, and if, sure. and if we're gonna bring up Tarantino, I'll say one of my favorite Kurt Russell roles um, in a long time. And actually, uh, to me, I, I feel like borrows heavily from the thing, including the music. Tarantino loves is, the thing. Is uh, the Hateful Eight? Okay. And yeah. Kurt Russell, I think, is one of like his best roles in a, in a long time. And and that movie to me is like basically the the thing without having <laughs> like the sort of uh, sci-fi, you know, yeah. alien character. Yeah, but um, you know, let's let's move on. Uh, we'll we'll wrap up a little bit later with a little carpenter and probably a little talk about the score and and probably a little talk about that dog, too. That was the the you main betcha. star. But um, with the actual star of the thing yeah. was Judd the dog. Yeah. Um, but we'll move on to our picks of the week. We'll come back. We'll talk a little bit about the thing before we wrap up the episode. Um, but my pick of the week was uh. Uh, like I said, Carpenter's first pairing with Kurt Russell, and that was a made-for-TV film that came out in 1979. It was it was a movie about Elvis Presley called Elvis. And I, I love your pick of the week, uh, Breakdown, uh, one of my favorite Kurt Russell movies. Um, can you kick it off here? Tell us a little bit about Breakdown. As I've already said before, I love Kurt Russell, so the options for a pick of the week with this guy are kind of endless. And I love that you and I, uh, Justin, we we both love Breakdown. So let's get to it. Breakdown is the epitome of a tense, no second wasted thriller. And it really all rides on Kurt Russell's shoulders. Basic premise is a man and wife are moving across the country, starting new jobs, a new life. They're in transition. Car breaks down on the side of the road and wife takes a ride from a seemingly nonchalant about it truck driver who offers to give her a ride into town only a a few minutes away. Husband stays behind because he's worried about abandoning their car. Oh man, you know where this is headed. We're, we're, We're pretty much set up immediately. But it is impressive how fast the film swings into action. Wife's kidnapped, held for ransom, no one believes husband as he sets out on this fearless, determined, hardcore search to track down his missing partner. Of course, Kurt Russell plays the lead, um, just trapped in this realistic nightmare that is too awful to believe, as Kathleen Quinlan plays his charming, albeit soon-to-be-kidnapped partner. Now, Russell is no stranger to playing a man in distress, freaked out, but determined not to back down, so he's kind of a natural for this role. His world is completely wrecked in the first 20 minutes as we watch the hope fade from his 
face like with each scene, not wanting to believe that his wife has just disappeared on him. After catching up with the truck driver who gave his wife the ride, and the truck driver is uh, played so irritatingly well by J.T. Walsh, the late J.T. Walsh, he disavows any knowledge of ever seeing Quinlan, thus leading Russell to flag down a cop that just happens to drive by who are of no help. The police actually even imply that maybe his wife just left him. And later on, strangers are reluctant to give the desperate Russell any help. So he is alone in this mission. There's a scene where Russell's at a police station reporting that his wife is missing. And he's standing in front of this wall just chocked full of all these missing persons photos. As the deputy behind him just cluelessly rattles off how many people are never found. And, you know, just kind of not really even paying attention how um, desperate this man is before him. It's a really devastating feeling and, and for me really sets in um, the, the feeling just that what would you do if that's where that moment really kicks in for me. And director Jonathan Mostow must have known in order to keep the tension flowing while staying entertaining for 90 minutes, you've got to stay tight on frames of your compelling lead actor and keep the pace of the picture flowing as fast as your lead actor's heart rate is to this entire movie. If breakdown were actual reality, I mean, not to sound totally fatalistic, it wouldn't have the outcome that it does. I mean, I, I don't really think that it would. But as I love to remind everyone, this is a movie. Um, I always love saying that. We watch these movies for entertainment value. Uh, perhaps, though, in the case of Breakdown, it's maybe a cautionary tale in some ways. Um, Russell kind of becomes like this lone ranger in tracking down his partner when all the odds are against him, even when it gets really bad, even after he's kidnapped and extorted by the men who took his wife. The first time I watched this, I totally thought Quinlan was dead the whole time. And it's best to just kind of give yourself over to the whole ride of this movie, because if you try to figure it out, you're going to be hard pressed to kind of figure out the different ways in which the story gets creative. Quinlan's transformation in the film is pretty remarkable too. Like she starts out as a charming partner in the film's opening to when we see her at the end as a traumatized yet strong woman battling to save she and her husband. And don't think that the story just ends with Quinlan being rescued. Oh no, no, no. It's a nail-bitingly tense conclusion, and J.T. Walsh plays the best worst villain through all of it. I don't have much sympathy for Walsh's misogynistic, murderous, scumbaggy ways, but some may find the ending of Breakdown to be ruthless by kind of like old Hollywood standards, but man, I do what Quinlan does at the end of this movie. Just give the the this movie a revisit and see if um if you find it as validating as I do. I leave this movie feeling like I want a partner like Kurt Russell who'd never relent until a kidnapped me was found. We don't have very much time to establish the relationship between Russell and Quinlan, but it is kind of impressive that we understand how connected they are in just the limited time that they do share on screen. Breakdown confirms paranoia, which I always love. Whenever a story's protagonist is revealed to be crazy the whole time, it makes me feel cheated. I want my paranoia validated, damn it, because your gut instinct is hardly ever wrong. 
And this is hearkening back to some like X-Files, trust no one, life lessons. But breakdown certainly leaves us rethinking ever being anything but on guard while on a road trip. So, Justin, I do have to say, I kind of love you. You told me that you watch this at least once a year. I do. Yeah, this is kind of, this is a definitely a go-to movie for me. Like, I mean, I've got about a dozen movies that I kind of go back to once a year, but this is one of I mean, of but my, this is one of them? That's, yeah, a, that's it's, awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun thriller. You know, it's like, sometimes I, I need that kind of like a... That taut. Yeah, this taut therapeutic release of like watching like a thriller. And um, yeah, most of them, this one I always go back to because it doesn't drag on. Just kind of, it's like... Yeah gets in there and gets it, dirty and then like and it has gives you that resolve too yeah it's like um the first thing that just came to mind is it's like a kickboxing class like you're just you're going at it but you're not like it's not like a hardcore like punching knocking out like action yeah. thing like you're just you're you're staying with it and it and it is painful but um you're seeing it through to the end yeah it's really entertaining i it's, I love I love Breakdown. So I can't wait for you to talk about this Elvis movie, John Carpenter Elvis movie with Kurt Russell. I've never seen this, and I've I've known about it for a really long time. I've just never actually tracked it down. Well, um, this is a so this was a made for TV movie. It was uh, came out in 1979. It was a very successful television film. Uh, John Carpenter. This was the film that he did. After the success of Halloween, he did actually like a couple of uh, made-for-TV movies um, that were pretty successful. And, man, this was a difficult one for me to kind of like, there's so much of Elvis Presley. There's such, he's such like a culturally iconic figure that it's hard to wrap this up in just a short little moment, but I'm going to try my best. The movie, essentially, uh, it shows uh, different portions of uh, Elvis Presley's life. Uh, if you're if you're totally not an Elvis fan whatsoever, um, this movie's not going to be for you. Uh, this movie came out only two years after Elvis Presley passed away. From what I've read, uh, Priscilla Presley, Elvis's wife, was paid $50,000 to read the script and kind of like... Get, you know, get her approval and saying like, yeah, this a lot of the stuff that's in the script is pretty true to life. The movie sort of open and closes near the um, last big moment of Elvis's career, which was his 1968 comeback special. He had sort of like been out of the limelight musically for like six or seven years. He was kind of just doing movies through the 60s and the music uh, landscape changed like the Beatles broke in America and, you know, the, there was like a, a whole new generation of younger kids who were like Elvis wasn't their thing. And so the movie kind of opens on him kind of like looking at his life scene, like am I has been like questioning whether or not this comeback special is going to be a hit. And then we kind of go back in time and we see Elvis in high school. Uh, we see this sort of like five-year period where Elvis like really – did the majority of like his big hits which was like from like 1955 to 1960 um and then also like there's him meeting uh priscilla presley and courting her and buying the house in memphis which became uh, graceland and uh the movies you know really plays like uh, a tv movie it's sort of like a rags to riches story which was very much like what elvis's story was i mean he came from a very uh, Im- 
a poor community in Memphis and, you know, ended up becoming this like rich superstar at like a very young age and being able to buy his mom like a brand new shiny pink Cadillac and a gigantic house. And uh, the movie does have this sort of cheesy TV moments. Um, and you just, I don't know, I think that's stuff, stuff that would be hard to get away from because you are trying to wrap up, uh, you know, like 20 years of somebody's life and, you know, a, a two and a half hour broadcast. But I think the movie does a pretty good job. Kurt Russell, you know, when you first start watching the movie, you wouldn't think that he would be an ideal candidate to play Elvis Presley. But man, I mean, you really do kind of forget that it's Kurt Russell. And especially because like Kurt Russell was like in his late 20s and like part the beginning of the movie, he's supposed to be like 18. You know, so it's one of those movies in the 70s, like they didn't hire like another actor, like everybody kind of looks older than they actually are. And there's a lot of Elvis music in the movie. It's not actually Elvis's voice. Uh, they hired uh, country music singer uh, Ronnie McDowell and he recorded about 30 something odd songs they used about 25 uh, Elvis songs and and Kurt Russell uh, lip sync to the music but he does a really good job it's pretty convincing Um, I think like Kurt Russell does a lot of the cadence and and sort of the mannerisms that uh, that people have grown to know that are associated with Elvis from a film history standpoint it's interesting to see uh, an early relationship between John Carpenter and Kurt Russell. And you can clearly see that the movie, though a TV movie, uh, there's certain sequences that are pretty exciting and look like they're made from a more skilled director. Like a, they, they, it looks more like a film, not so much like a TV movie. The big watch is Kurt Russell's performance. If you're an Elvis aficionado, you'll notice that they kind of condense time a little bit and they kind of skip over certain things and there's certainly been other films that have been made after the release of this film that kind of got more into uh some of the weirder parts of Elvis's life and his relationship with his mom though that is heavily on display in in this film but uh it's really enjoyable if you um enjoy Elvis's music and and you kind of like music based movies um I think that you'll have a lot of fun with this one um, it wasn't really available for a pretty long time, but now uh, Shout Factory put out a remastered uh, DVD and Blu-ray of the film that's widely available, and it's it's a pretty good-looking movie. It's got a lot. There's a lot of music in it. Um, I had a good time with it, and it's uh, one of the few early uh, adult roles that Kurt Russell did. You know, he had always. I mean, he's been in. A lot of Disney Disney movies when he was a kid, but this was one of the first few like grown adult roles, like seeing him take on a character. And man, he does a really good job. I mean, it's it's pretty awesome. I have to say, in going through photos and a little bit of history, and while you're talking about that, yeah, Kurt Russell is not the first person I would think of to play Elvis. But if he is not a real darn good ringer for him i mean i want to see this is there is there any uh streaming service that this is on right now um i don't believe it's uh i mean i think you can rent it on amazon the elvis movie with john carpenter and breakdown were your picks of the week we love kurt russell on this podcast yeah well let's uh let's keep it going this is your murray moment 
texting me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Hey, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. When it comes to linking Billy to horror or sci-fi, well, it's just not easy every time. And in thinking about The Thing um, being an unjustified critical and commercial flop when it was released, it made me think of a certain period in Billy's career, specifically the mid-90s. A lot of uh, the movies he did during this time were these like oddball, unexpected movies like Mad Dog and Glory or The Man Who Knew Too Little. They, they really never got their fair shake. And then it dawned on me that one of these unpopular Billy comedies also featured Keith David from The Thing. I love Keith David, so I always make a note of when he's in anything. Um, so he was featured in a movie along with Billy, and I figured... You know, it was just the time to bring up the elephant in the room and finally tell y'all why Larger Than Life from 96 deserves another viewing. You didn't know I was going there, did you? (laughs) I absolutely did not. I knew Larger Than Life would eventually creep its way into I mean, I made it this far. I made it this far. This film um, came at a transitional time in Billy's career. He'd emerged from the 80s, larger than life, pun very much intended, and cranked out a ton of movies in the 90s, including some great comedies like What About Bob and Groundhog Day and a podcast favorite of ours, Quick Change. If you don't know about this movie, um, it's about a flim-flam artist, motivational speaker, peddling his ways to help people get over life's metaphorical obstacles. After inheriting his uh, long-lost father's circus partner, an elephant named Vera, the story becomes about their journey across the country to give Vera a new life and Billy's character learning more about himself. Well, it's work. In order to get work, it's got to be a pretty good movie to get me out of bed, or at least out of the house, Billy said about working on this Howard Franklin film. Now, Howard Franklin, of course, was Billy's co-director in Quick Change, and I guess would probably have had something to do with why Billy chose to do this movie in the first place. Well, Larger Than Life wasn't a blockbuster. I saw it in the theater, but it wasn't a blockbuster. But I honestly think it's because people weren't expecting a movie about an elephant starring Bill Murray. Because... I don't know, you either have to be in the right mood or be an animal lover or just love Bill Murray. But this wasn't the first time the man had been faced with people throwing their noses up at one of his more unexpected movies. Many people thought that Larger Than Life was just begging to be filled with sight gags, relying on physical comedy. I mean, it's about an elephant, for Christ's sakes. And while there are a few moments of that, Billy's not a physical comedian, and and Howard Franklin knew this. A heartwarming, pretty family-friendly, deadpan satire road trip movie about an elephant? Yeah, nobody saw this one coming. 
And like The Razor's Edge in 84 and Scrooge in 88, these were Bill Murray movies that people didn't immediately respond to in a favorable way. When you become a beloved comedian, people expect you to keep doing the same thing. And Billy occasionally throw in these ringers that, in hindsight, were obviously like a way of utilizing his well-honed skills while also attempting to branch out a little bit. But doing something different doesn't always go over well with a mainstream audience. And also as a Janine Garofalo fan, people didn't get her role in Larger Than Life either. Both Janine and Billy are known for their cutting and smart sarcasm, but many reviewers felt like Janine's talents were totally wasted in this movie. That's the thing though. Her character was funny, as funny as an animal-loving, curmudgeonly zoo handler could be, but no, she wasn't a clown. It seemed as if people expected or maybe wanted buffoonery in this movie. It wasn't like it started out that way and then just petered out. It wasn't ever the tone of the movie from the outset. I mean, unless you're talking about Matthew McConaughey's performance as this out-of-control, whack-job, can't-stop-talking-hasn't-slept-in-over-a-week truck driver. He was supposed to be the buffoon in the movie, but as, as a whole, this movie was not about physical buffoonery. Also, Billy's ad-libbing is top-notch in this movie. Everything depends on his natural inclination for comedy, and pairing him up with an elephant doesn't really seem like the most obvious thing to do. But with a partner who could do anything unexpected at any moment, Billy's kind of the perfect guy who could handle that and make it funny. Okay, so I'll kind of round out here with a extended quote from Billy on making comedy work in Larger Than Life. I've done enough movies to know that when I walk in in the morning, what's supposed to be funny? It's always a great shock to be wrong and go, oh my gosh, I'm playing this straight and it should be funny. Because sometimes it's just written automatically and you think, well, there's just nothing funny about this, so why not try to make it funny? It's always that kind of challenge, and it happens about 40 minutes in, and I'm watching everybody else figure out what's supposed to happen in the shot and say, okay, I can do it the way that you want it, but why don't I do it funny instead? Although this is an exceptionally good script, it has lots of stuff to it, but it's always a challenge to make something funny when there's just nothing there. Where there's just movement, storytelling, plot, if you can make that funny, then it's a good day. There's something inside me where the rhythm just says, this isn't where it should be, this should be funny, so if you're going to do it, you may as well do something better. Now, I know that I'm peddling this movie for you to reconsider with a fresh eye, but just think about it for a sec. It would only be two years later when Billy would do Rushmore with Wes Anderson, the film that made people realize his talents were way more well-rounded than what we knew in the 80s. And here we entered another phase of his career. But go back and look at some of his movies, which, like The Thing, didn't initially perform well. Back to The Razor's Edge, back to Scrooge, Quick Change, and Larger Than Life. You see the same things in his performances that you see now. From the more dramatic side to the sillier, he can drift from one extreme to the other within the same movie, even mixing emotions in the same scene, and you're with him the whole time. You can really see this metamorphosis Billy was going through 
during this time in his career. And who knows, you may even gain a new respect for the man's journey as an actor. Now, Larger Than Life is currently available on Amazon Prime, in case you're wondering, Justin. Um, However silly or soft of a movie it can be, I promise you, it really does show how Bill Murray can make anything work in a movie. But you just got to be in the right mood. I mean, I don't know when anyone's in the mood for a comedy about an elephant. I'm just going to say I watched this three times recently. Really? Yes. Wow. Yes. And dude, the guy makes anything funny. I just, I, I, I think that the movie does not get a fair shake. It's not like this is a masterpiece or this needs to get an Oscar, or he's, um, you know, pulling something from some amazingly talented part of him himself that he never has before. It is just a great example of how he can save anything. There's so many parts in it that cannot be scripted, and that they just let the camera roll on him. I haven't seen it since it came out. The, the most thing I remember <laughs> about Larger Than Life was that it... A bit part of it was shot in St. Louis. Can you identify any of the scenes that were shot in St. Louis when you're watching it? You know, I was looking for it. I think that there's a scene in Cherokee Street. I was looking. I I knew the Cherokee Street thing. I could not find it because it must not have been where they say, like, I I don't recall them saying that they're in St. Louis. Yeah, they're like like in Kansas or something. Yeah, they say they're in Kansas. It's um, another movie that's like shot in St. Louis, but like isn't recognized. Doesn't say being, that it's yeah. actually there. I I was looking for it, and then there's uh, towards the end of the movie, um, Bill and Vera are running through an airport, and okay. I wondered if the airport was was Lambert. Okay, because I know that there have been a lot of movies that have yeah. filmed at Lambert, but I'm not totally positive. Well, I'll say I did not know that Larger Than Life was going to come up. I like I like not knowing though. I, you know, I've been um, waiting for the right moment, and I love Keith David. I mean, that guy's smile and just everything about him and They Live. Really, I'm wearing a pin on my jacket right now yeah. from They Live. Well, thank you again for that Murray moment. Mm-hmm. Of course. <laughs> was there any? Uh, was there any other tidbits? We I know we had a couple of tidbits that we wanted to close out the thing on. Like we said in the very beginning, John Carpenter wrote wrote and directed a majority of the movies. You know, some of them he got a scriptwriter, a few of the pictures where he wasn't the co-writer or the main writer, but he scored the majority of the movies that he wrote and directed, and uh, that's pretty unheard of. The Thing is actually one of the few movies where John Carpenter did not do essentially like the the main score the main theme that was the composer ennio morricone who um um chimed who chimed in on this with the musical score he's very much known for doing many scores you know good the bad and the ugly like a lot of spaghetti westerns but i think um, he did the uh the untouchables who we talked about in the yeah that's right previous yeah and week um too. and uh uh the hateful eight mm-hmm. uh, was one of like his last scores that he did um but john carpenter did do some of the interludes in between for the thing um that kind of connect to to kind of like i think broaden the score because they were things were falling behind um he kind of punched in a few things and so you can definitely hear 
the Carpenter moments, but uh, the Marconi score, you can definitely hear his contributions. There's a lot of moments where there's like a lot of strings and it sounds less like the sort of um, synth-driven bassy scores that uh, that Carpenter does for uh, the majority of his movies. The more stringy parts, yeah, that you were talking about, it really creates this sense of just like being, um, it's completely off-putting. Like, I mean, it's beautiful, but it's also just like creates this feeling of unease. It's wild to think um, going into uh, the reception of this movie, which this movie was really uh, critically kind of hated on, uh, commercially kind of hated on. It did not do well. and. Blame uh, E.T. Yeah, it's E.T.'s yeah. fault. E.T. came out two <laughs> weeks before the thing became like a huge success. And, they're you know, people were like, time, we like our aliens yeah, nice. We, we want a nice alien. But um, it's hard to believe that the, uh, you know, the score to this movie is, is considered, you know, a r- really great score. But uh, um, if you're familiar with the Razzie Awards, it's sort of like a play on the Oscars of like the worst of the year. Uh, the, the score to this was nominated for a Razzie. Oh geez, some of my favorite movies have been in the Razzies. Yeah, and and um, <laughs> John Carpenter said that um, you know there was one uh, particular magazine that was like posed the question like, is the thing the most hated film that's ever come out? And he said he was really kind of hurt by uh, yeah, it would be the reaction to the movie and the problem that most people had with the movie was that it was such a bleak film that did not have a resolve, did not have like a happy ending. Um, really like all the things that, uh, that people had problems with it at the time of its release are, are really like all the reasons why I think it's loved now. The, um, ending is something that I do appreciate too. I like that we don't really have the closure that you get normally with, with movies. It's kind of like that same black Christmas feeling of, you don't really know. You don't know what happens. I, for one, Justin, I don't know about you, but I, for one, feel like we're left with two people at the end of this that are neither one of them are the thing. And that's a kind of up for um, debate because we, you know, we don't have closure. We don't know if, if yeah. someone, if, yeah. if the thing, if the thing has been destroyed or, or if it's a uh, Keith David or Kurt Russell. Yeah. And in uh, Carpenter said like, that's the turned out people like audiences wanted to know. They wanted a definitive answer. And he said that's what a lot of people hated about the movie when it came out. I love it. I think it I, I do it too. I, I, lo- I love I love that it's sort of open ended and, and I also I like the bleakness of the film, mm-hmm. you know, and sh- it should be known that like um you know, when Universal Studios like approached John Carpenter, uh they wanted him to sign basically a thing that said they had complete creative control over the ending and everything and and John Carpenter had had a very successful career working outside of the studio system. I mean, they were clearly distributing films, but he was able yeah. to make, you know, he was having success as, after success. And um, he, he was like 100% like, nah, I'm not going to do the movie. It's not worth putting all this time and effort into it if I can't have creative freedom because th- that's the whole reason why, you know, that's how I've been working. And he didn't know that, you know he he was he was going to clash but he convinced them to sort of like omit this pretty standard contract that they did with directors at the time and they gave him the creative power to do the you know make these decisions and have a bleak ending 
and it's painful that it's it's turns out that like that was you know a, a studio's like well we know audiences you know they want a happy ending it's proven but we're gonna let you do this and then the movie was like carpenter's first like sort of like failure at, at the box office and um man i don't think that had to do with the ending at all i, I think i think a lot of it had to do with like the time frame and yeah you know, I think it was like a very, this was just, sometimes it, I think a lot of it has to do with the timing, you know, when a movie comes out. Yeah. Um, and I think the thing just, it was just like a wrong time for, for a movie like that to come out. Like, especially early eighties when you had so many sort of like these, like people wanted to feel good, you mm-hmm. know, the seventies were like a very bleak time period. And the movies that came out were very, uh, realistic to the times in the eighties were more about early eighties were more about excess and like, let's enjoy like our, you know, let's enjoy things. Let's not be depressed. You know, uh, actually a little depressing element of the early eighties was, was something, a unintended metaphor, um, that, that Carpenter very much recognizes now, but didn't really, um, thought about it kind of in hindsight was that I mean you can think about the thing as as this um you know virus or thing thing that takes over your body you don't have any control over it you you don't know that it's even there until it's already too late and in 82 when this came out that was also kind of right at the beginning of when the AIDS epidemic started gaining traction and kind of exploding and no one knowing what to do with it and knowing that it couldn't be cured couldn't be cured then and it it is really um I don't know I think it's pretty interesting to look back at it and just think like that came out right at the same time this is playing upon you know fears in society yeah yeah and just like kind of like crazy how those things um intertwined it's it's pretty wild yeah and and if you do look at it as an aids metaphor when you're watching it it's like whoa like it's 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 kind of wild yeah that that it was unintentional and it fits so perfectly in with it um i had one one last thing of course sure i always got to talk about the animal absolutely um jed the uh main dog the that 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 starts off all of this um my dog stan had a major problem with his role in this movie i had to hold him during all of jed's scenes because he wanted to attack the tv um but jed was actually half wolf half wolf dog and made him kind of uh different than most other animal actors Everybody kind of on set was um, told to don't look at him in the eye. Just let him get to know you. And after a little while, he became comfortable with the actors. Um, But that there was this kind of creepiness to him and that he was a little too in tune with with everyone. And um, Richard Masser, who plays his um, handler in the movie, said that there were numerous times when um, when he could tell that Jed got on edge and he needed to just kind of back off and just let the dog kind of control the situation. And I don't think I'm being crazy here, but Jed's performances in this movie, man, that dog is... Um, I, 
I don't know how a dog can give dramatic performances, but man, there's like a, a scene where he's walking down the hallway, checking out rooms and he's supposed yeah. to be the thing. It's creepy. It's I, real creepy. In our uh, interview I saw with Richard Master, he said that tracking shot where uh, Jed is following him like side by side, like mm-hmm. stepping with his step. They, he said they were rehearsed that for like a month or something. Really? Yeah, because, you know, they were building a relationship. Yeah. And, you know, we were supposed to, as an audience, supposed to get the scene, get the idea that he was, you know, felt comfortable with him. Yeah. Um, I mean, in the movie, they when, had just you, known each other. And when you watch that scene, it's, yeah. it, there's, there's something there, you know. A dog's pretty incredible. Just got to say, shout out to Jed. Good job. Was there anything else with the thing <laughs> that uh, I think that, that's about all I had? Um, I'm excited that this was the first movie uh, that we did for the new year. Um, Man, we've got uh, yeah, and we've got uh, a lot of exciting movies. We're gonna do a couple of winter time movies, but uh, you know we love we love themes here. At Don't mm-hmm. push pause. We, we love a good theme, but we aren't gonna go with a winter theme for our next movie. Uh, we're gonna dig into the '90s. Uh, independent cinema which is a a moment in in film history that is near and dear to my heart it was probably the moment where I was like most excited about new movies coming out early and mid 90s of like independent movies I can't wait uh, we're going to be doing I Shot Andy Warhol. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be talking about Lily Taylor, who's like legitimately under. So underrated. Uh, rated. I mean, <laughs> it's it's crazy. But um, yeah, we'll be doing I Shot Andy Warhol. Excited to talk about that movie. Uh, also just wanted to uh, make one mention of uh, another local podcast, um, you know, here, regional podcast. It seems appropriate since we're doing the thing. Uh, it's called The Carpenter Rants. Um, they do uh, mainly horror movies, like which you know we 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 love horror yeah. movies, but yeah. we've you know um, we're kind of all over the map with the <laughs> movies that we talk about. But they focus mainly on horror films, and uh, we're kind of stuck in the past. They with do our, a lot of newer movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're kind of stuck in the past with our recommends. They they talk a lot about uh, uh, recommend movies that uh, are just out now that you know you should check out. So it's always kind of cool to see what they have. Uh, what they're recommending on their uh, social media, yeah. but uh, follow them, check them out. The Carpenter Rants. Um, we always appreciate their insights and yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, support your local podcast. As always, if you are new to listening to us, welcome. If you've been following us all along, thank you so much. Uh, if you want to follow us on social media, you can find us on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook at Don't Push Pause podcast if you want to check out back episodes uh, we have an archive of our old episodes at don't push uh, if you are a streamer and you don't download a lot please download an episode or two it helps us uh, measure our following it helps us see our growth if, if you know you don't mind downloading that would be great if you're on any platform in which you can rate us uh, and you feel that we're worthy please give us a good rating <laughs> it uh, or spread the word you know share our posts on instagram or social media mm-hmm. talk about us in your stories every little bit helps and it helps us grow it helps more people hear about the movies that uh you love and that you remembered we have a lot of fun with this but it, we always love hearing from other people and if you want to uh, contact us you can always reach us at don't push pause podcast at gmail.com 
But until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, guys.